0: I'd like to invite you this morning to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22, and we're going to be looking at a text of Scripture beginning in verse 23, Matthew 22, verse 23 and following. Just to give you a little bit of insight as to where I'm going here, some of you may be concerned that I've skipped the passage here in our series on Matthew, and I plan to come back to verse 15 through 22. That was the sermon I had prepared for last week. Uh, but, because of the suitability for this sermon for uh, communion Sunday, I thought i like 'd go ahead and and take this one on this week um, next week we 're going to have a message that uh, that is addressing the, issue, the uh, anniversary of nine eleven so we 'll come back to uh, verse fifteen through twenty two uh, on the third Sunday of September, just to give you an idea if i 've not lost my mind. There is some planning and thinking going on here so let 's uh, look at verse twenty three of Matthew. 22, the context is this is Wednesday of the last week of Jesus' life. He only has uh, two more days before he's crucified. Uh, a couple days earlier, he had um, spoken out against the corruption of the temple complex. And as a result of that, uh, there are a number of now of challenges that are coming to him, challenging his authority by those who are, at the time, were the spiritual leaders of Israel. Verse 23, on that day same day that the Pharisees asked him a question, Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and questioned Jesus, saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother, as next of kin, shall marry his wife and raise up an offspring to his brother. Now there were seven brothers with us, and the first married and died and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother so also the second and the third, down to the seventh. And last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven shall she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken not understanding the Scriptures or the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry, nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read that which was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Recently, I've read that Dr. Jack Kevorkian has died. That name I would hope many of you are still familiar with. He gained notoriety for his role in numerous doctor-assisted suicides. Dr. Kevorkian used his medical training, years and years and years of medical training and his medical experience to bring about the death of those who were suffering, rather than applying his medical skills and his know-how to helping his patients deal with their difficult lives. Having lost his license to practice medicine, Dr. Kevorkian administered a lethal injection into a man, which was videotaped at that on that occasion and subsequently broadcast on 60 Minutes later on. And he was later found guilty of second-degree homicide and sentenced to 10 to 25 years in prison. Now, I have that picture in my mind of someone who has tremendous skills for doing good, using those skills to bring about death. And that's what I've been thinking about as I looked at this text this morning, considering the first century Jewish religious leaders, the Sadducees, who are using the Hebrew Scriptures in this particular incident. The words of life are the things that they are using and quoting twice in their question in their long-extended challenge to Jesus to prove that there's no such thing as a resurrection. To prove that there's no basis for hope beyond this life. Here are those people who are coming and saying, I'm going to use the Bible and I'm going to try to destroy the one who has come and identified himself as the resurrection and the life. It's a fascinating text of Scripture to me of the juxtaposition between people who are using God's word in order to destroy. And that's exactly what's going on in this text. And Matthew chapter 22, verses 23 to 33, clearly are placing a spotlight on one segment of the Jewish religious leaders of that first century, the Sadducees. The Sadducees were rather few in number, they were very wealthy. Uh, they were the aristocratic uh, segment of the Jewish first-century leadership, and they are clearly not on the same page with other segments of the leadership of the Jews of the first century. The Pharisees, who, if you had gone, if I had gone in order, we would have already been dealing with them. Uh, we'll come back to that in just in a couple of weeks. But it's the Pharisees that they are in contrasting here, because the Pharisees, unlike the Pharisees, the, the Sadducees, are willing to cooperate with the Roman authorities which is clearly contrasted with uh, what the text there in the previous one dealing with the issue about a coin and Rome. But they're willing to cooperate with Roman authorities because they want to hold on to their positions of power. And they dismissed all other books of the Hebrew Bible except for the first five books, the Pentateuch. Those are the only books that they would hold to, the only books that they believe were truly the Word of God. If you also want to add to your referencing of understanding the differences between Pharisees and Sadducees, you might want to write down the verse Acts 23, verse 8. When Paul is being tried and he knows there's this big division between the Jewish leadership and he brings up this issue between Pharisees and Sadducees, and we record this verse. The Sadducees, Acts 23, 8, The Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Clearly, there's a major difference between the Pharisees and Sadducees. The Sadducees do not believe in life beyond the grave. They believe that the soul died when the body died. And here on this occasion, the Sadducees and Pharisees are holding one thing in common. The one thing they do agree on is that Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, had to be destroyed. He was a threat to their positions of authority. And Jesus was capable of exposing, and he already had begun this process of exposing their hypocrisy, exposing their ignorance, their corruption. And it had become clear that Jesus was not about to back down. He was speaking the truth. He spoke it in public earlier days days earlier when the courts were jammed with thousands of pilgrims who had gathered there for Passover. Jesus, Jesus had publicly rebuked the leadership saying, look at this temple, to become a den of thieves. The Sadducees responded by doing what? Here they come to Jesus and they're going to pose to Him a theoretical, theological question about the resurrection to prove that that what they actually believed, that they were right. They're trying to defend themselves. They're trying to say, look, we have our territory that's marked out and nobody's going to push us off this area, we know we're right. They're also out, of course, to show that Jesus lacked wisdom and that he lacked uh, authority to speak uh, authoritatively to the issues of the day. They're trying to also eliminate him as a significant spiritual authority. And how are they doing this? They're doing it by using the word of life to destroy the Holy Son of God and undermine all the thoughts of hope and meaning and purpose beyond life in this world. I find it very fascinating as I've meditated upon this text and tried to think, what is the point of this text for us? The thought that came to my mind again and again and again is Paul, a former Pharisee, by the way, whose comments in Romans chapter 15, verse 4, remind us that the purpose of Scripture, one of the purposes of the Hebrew Bible, he says in Romans 15, verse 4, is this, it is designed to provide the people of God with hope. Not destroy hope, it's designed to give hope to God's people. Paul wrote in this, Romans fifteen four. Whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction that through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. And so I'd like to look at this text in Matthew 22 this morning, and I'd like to suggest that we find three insights into biblical hope. That there is hope for eternal life, the Bible says. As it says in Hebrews 6, that the hope is designed to be an anchor for our souls. sure and steadfast. 1 Peter 1 says hope is a living hope that we are to have. And also it says in Titus chapter 2 that we are called to a blessed hope. Hope is what we're to have because of Jesus Christ. I'd like us to consider three observations. And the first is this. I believe in this text it is, we find indicators that through the Scriptures and through an understanding of the truth and through Christ, there is a satisfying hope. The Sadducees focus their question on an interesting passage from Deuteronomy chapter 25, which has been re- referenced as a leverate marriage regulations and stipulations. You say, what are you talking about? Levirate. Well, levirate marriage referred to the obligation that a man had to beget children for his deceased brother. So that brother one marries someone and he dies and his wife uh, is left as a widow and uh, there's no children. There's nobody to help support this widow. And so the brother number two is called to marry this woman and do so in a way that Continues the family line, the family name, also providing protection to the widow in a society where women were severely limited in earning wages. And so there's an economic component here. There's a, a family system component. There's a number of things going into the reasons why they did this practice. And by the way, just an aside, the book of Ruth is all about and illustrating how this principle is acted upon as a member of an extended member of the family takes in Ruth and helps put in practice this Leverett marriage principles. Well, the problem here is that when the Sadducees come, they're asking a question in such a way as to deliberately and intentionally couch the question to develop this logical conundrum. To come to Jesus and say, all right, let's make up this scenario. It's not a real scenario. There's no one that's had seven brothers. Clearly, seven means complete. They're making this up. And so they say, okay, let's have seven of these guys, all of them die. And so they're asking the question designed to say that any thought of a resurrection clearly is something that's absurd. This is ridiculous. You can just logically see that this would never work. And that's the, that's the intent of the question. But notice that Jesus did not fall for this trap. He said in verse 29, you are mistaken. He calls, he calls it like he sees it. And here this hypothetical concern over multiple marriages with multiple brothers was insincerely put forward with no thought given as to what God's plans were and God's purposes are. You see, marriage is a temporary institution ordained by God for our good and His glory in this world. Marriage, Ephesians 5, is a model of Christ. And his body, the church. John Piper in his book, The Momentary Marriage, explains the purpose of marriage in this way. Marriage exists for God's glory. It exists to to display God. Marriage is patterned after Christ's covenant relationship to his redeemed people, the church. And the highest meaning... And the most ultimate purpose of marriage is to put the covenantal relationship of Christ and his church on display. So that people can see this is a picture. This is a portrait of a greater reality of Christ and his love and devotion to this church, his bride. And so every human marriage is designed to be a portrait of that. Sorry, back to the quote. That's why marriage exists. If you're married, that's why you're married. But see, things change once you enter into the new age, the resurrection age. Jesus and his bride at that time will be eternally joined together in holy bliss and in absolute oneness. And in the resurrection, the institution of human marriage will no longer be needed since the perfection of the glory of Christ and his bride, the church, will be fully displayed. It will be seen in all of its glory and magnificence. And in the resurrection, there's no more marriage. On a human level. There's no more need for sexual relations. There's no more need for procreation. There will be unending joy. And it's in an ongoing condition of this unending joy of God's people. They'll be forever satisfied by the glories of Christ's eternal love. So in the resurrection of God's people, there's no longer this aloneness that was referred to. In Genesis chapter 3 and chapter 2, it talks about making this other one for Adam because he was all alone. Well, there's no need for this. There's no more aloneness. The members of Christ's body will be enjoying unending fellowship and communion with one another and with Christ, the bridegroom, and no more will there be relational fallouts, arguments, betrayal, unfaithfulness, insensitivity, you name it. All that is done with. if you want to really get the final glimpse of the glories of all that is yet to come, you can turn to Revelation chapter 21, and I'll just briefly remind you that satisfaction is going to govern the lives of God's people in the era era of resurrection living. We read in Revelation chapter 21, verse 1, I saw a new heaven and new earth. I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them, and he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall no longer be any death. There shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. He who sits on the throne said, I am making all things new. There's a sense in which the hope and longing that we have for the joy of being known and being known fully and enjoying a sharing of yourself in the greatest of intimacy and joy and bliss and and excitement is all going to be wrapped up in ways that will be totally different from our current experience in this world. And the hope of the resurrection is the hope of having our longings for deep communion with God and deep communion with the people of God that will finally be fully satisfied. Every time you have an argument, every time you have a fallout relationally, every time as a single person you're yearning and longing, wishing you could be uh, joined to your, a, a spouse someday, is to, is, is to recognize that you live in a fallen world in which things are not the way they ultimately will be. And someday you'll be fully satisfied in Christ. Longing for the day of resurrection. That's what's built in all of us. Where someday we will no longer endure the struggle of alienation. The struggle of disloyalty, the struggle of distrust, aloofness, brokenness in relationships that characterize a fallen world. These Sadducees missed it. They did not understand that if you deny all of the hope of resurrection world, then you you are left with this fallen world and that's it. And therefore you're left with what? You're left with the philosophy of eat, drink, and be merry because there's nothing after this world. Find some way to be happy. That's basically what you're left with. So Jesus is saying, listen, I'm calling. I'm making sure you understand there is much more yet to come. And the issue of marriage is to miss the whole point of the resurrection. I hope that's clear to you. am not saying, don't walk out of here saying, oh, my marriage doesn't make any more difference. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying it makes absolutely huge difference in this world. If you are married, you need to uh, apply yourself to all the principles that have in Ephesians 5 and various places in Scripture about what marriage is meant to be. But... I am saying that marriage is only intended for life in this world. The world to come will be absolutely one characterized by satisfaction in Christ. Secondly, I want us to look regarding hope that there are indications here in this text of a sure scriptural hope. A sure scriptural hope. The hope of the resurrection is not rooted in the laws of science which can be observed and measured and repeated. Resurrection hope is anchored in the Scriptures. The Scriptures which reveal the self-existent, all-powerful Creator God. Now that begs the question, how reliable are the Scriptures? (laughs) Can we really trust the Scriptures? Can we trust the written revelation of God found in the 39 books of the Hebrew Scriptures, which is the one in which they had in their hands at the time Jesus was having this conversation, even though they denied uh, 34 of them? Or can we also rely upon the 27 books of the New Testament? Are they reliable? Are they accurate? Let me remind you of Jesus' perspective on the 39 books of the Hebrew Scriptures that He had at at the time in which He spoke. He said this in John 10.35, Scripture cannot be Broken. He also said in Luke 18.31, All things that are written by the prophets will be accomplished. Not some, not most, all. Interesting statistic I came across this week, that if you take all the verses that quote Jesus, and what he said, and what he taught, there are about 1,800 verses that contain the content, or they have the content of what Jesus uh, said and spoke, 180 of them of the 1,800, which is 10%, one-tenth of them, come from the Old Testament. That is, from the lips of Jesus, he spoke so often, 10% of what we have recorded of what he said was him alluding to or speaking of and quoting the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. Jesus was so confident of the accuracy and authority of the Hebrew Scriptures that he did what? he argued for the resurrection based on the present tense of one Hebrew verb in Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. Did you catch that? Jesus, in speaking in response to the Sadducees, quotes the verse, Exodus chapter 3, when Moses is being addressed by God in the burning bush. He goes back and quotes that verse, which God says, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And and Jesus is emphasizing what? The text does not say, I will be, or I used to be. But he said, I am, present tense. And that is his argument that there is such a thing now as God is the God of the living. Those patriarchs still are continuing on. They have not ceased to exist. He argues that from one word of the Hebrew Bible. And I would add to that, of course, there are many other specific references we could add as the resurrection is taught in the Hebrew Scriptures. But let me just make one more point here, point here. And that is Jesus answered them based on their terms. They limited the Word of God, which was wrong, down to five books. Jesus found the answer and spoke to it from the first five books of the Bible in the Pentateuch. But there are many answers he could have given, but they discounted those, including Isaiah 26, Verse 19. Your dead will live, their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy, for your dew is as the dew of the dawn, and the earth will give birth to the departed spirits. Speaks of resurrection. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, those to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. And then the verse that Peter and Paul both, understood to be applying to the resurrection of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. They quote Psalm 16, verse 10. You will not leave my soul to the place of death, Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Now listen to me here very closely. The Sadducees fell into error because they did not know the Scriptures. They were around them all the time. They had heard them all their life. They had uh, somehow uh, had exposure to them for countless hours of their life, and yet they did not really know them, and they had hearts that obviously did not, I don't think, very closely believe in them at all. They dismissed large portions of God's Word, and by denying the teaching of all the Scriptures that were available to them at the time regarding the future, they were able then to devote themselves to pursuing all the power and all the pleasure that they could while they were alive. By distancing themselves from the concerns of what would happen to them in the life to come, they lived only for the moments at hand. They tried to make secure their earthly futures by holding on to as much wealth and political power as they possibly could. And while going through the motions of worshiping the God of Israel, they gradually became materialists whose hope was being built upon their own pursuits of power and prestige and possessions. And I would dare say it's possible for people to come to church in the 21st century and to hear people talk about the Bible, to have their own copy of the Bible, and to say, oh yes, I believe in God, but to live a life that would in many ways be very similar to a materialist because they really are all wrapped up about life in this world. That's it. It's all about living for the here and now. It's all about getting as much as you possibly can get. It's all about doing as much as you possibly can do that satisfies your yearnings and your desires for self-satisfaction, self-fulfillment. Many people say, oh, I believe the Bible, but they live like a materialist. And Jesus calls them on the carpet and says, Scripture clearly does not teach annihilation. Scripture does not teach Reincarnation, it teaches resurrection. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And since they viewed Jesus as a threat to their power, these, leadership, um, these men involved in leadership, they had no qualms with taking steps to det- destroy Jesus. Because why? Because they were all about living for themselves. They were all about living for themselves. What a sad, sad commentary on people who were supposedly those trying to help them understand the truth. They were indeed misunderstanding the truth themselves. I want us to lead thirdly here, and most importantly, to another insight into this text regarding things we learn about hope. And that is that there is a supremely strong to save hope taught in this text. Jesus confronted the Sadducees about their ignorance not only of Scripture, but verse 29, the power of God. The power of God. Now, I find this fascinating because it seems to me, how closely do you have to read the Bible, and how long do you have to read the Bible before you get the impression that God has power? Huge amounts of power. Expansive, immeasurable power. How, long, how many pages do you need to start reading? I, I don't know about your Bible. My Bible starts off like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, how much farther do we need to go? You add to that, Genesis chapter, I'm just thinking about the early verses in, the, in Pentateuch. Genesis chapter 18, 14. Ask the question, is anything too hard for Yahweh, for Jehovah? Jeremiah 32, 17. Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. The exodus out of Egypt was a memorable display of God's supreme power as he delivered his people out of bondage, the bondage of Pharaoh. And every Israelite was taught that their earliest years they learned from when they were knee high all the way up. Exodus chapter 9, verse 16. For this purpose I have raised you up. That is, you Israelites, you people, uh, children of Israel, that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. God's power is not a theoretical power. Not a hypothetical power. His power has been demonstrated in space and time in history again and again and again. How is it that these people couldn't see that and know that? What kind of God were they worshiping? An anemic, weak God, unable to overcome the forces of death, apparently. And that brings me, of course, to the realization that they are talking to and engaging in a conversation at the time the Sadducees were talking to who? To Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And during his three years of his public ministry, he had performed who knows how many acts and feats of supernatural power. I don't know about you, but I thought about in the middle of that storm last Sunday, I thought about the incident of Jesus in the middle of a storm on the Sea of Galilee, speaking. Be still. Saying just one word in in the Greek and having the winds calm down to not even blowing, and then calming the, o- the ocean, the waves on that particular Sea of Galilee, calming them till it's still. That is amazing power. Imagine me standing out in the storm. Are you standing outside of that storm, walking outside, which is crazy enough, middle of that storm, and saying, Be still! And you get, yes, and you get a, you get a what, bunch of leaves thrown in your face, and, you know, even more wind. You have no power over that at all. But here is Jesus. He speaks, and the winds and waves obeyed him. He fed multitudes by a small amount of fish and bread. He resisted the schemes of the devil for 40 days in the wilderness, and he raised the dead to life. It is Jesus Christ who was crucified in weakness. He made it appear as if he was weak, as he set apart, set aside his great power and let those forces of who had the power at the time, the political power, the spiritual, religious power of the day. Here they are, they take him, and they have him put to death. And yet, what happens? He was put to death in weakness. He was raised to life, 2 Corinthians 13, 4. Raised to life and lives by the power of God. And what is the whole chapter of 1 Corinthians 15 about? As we read earlier. It's reminding us that Indeed, Christ has been raised from the dead, and therefore there is, it makes all the difference in the world that there is the gospel, includes the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is good news. Why? Because there is power in the gospel. The gospel is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. The power to change us from what we would be on our own to what God wants to make us into by His grace. And the message of the cross is to those who are perishing, it's foolishness. But we know in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that the message of the cross to those who are being saved, that is it is a process by which God works in us. During our time in which we're still on this earth, those who are being saved, it is the power of God help us in our weaknesses. Jesus self-surrender on the death on the cross And God's exaltation of Christ and raising him from the dead provides hope, my friend. And the Sadducees who denied all this hope, who denied the power of God, are people who left people in bondage, in despair, and in the forces of the devil. I would argue that what we need to see in this text this morning is to realize that there is hope in the gospel. A hope for full and complete liberation one day. A hope for pardon from sin, a hope for newness of life, a hope for encouragement against the forces of oppression, the forces of evil, the forces of bondage, that they are now defeated and that someday they will be finally destroyed. Indeed, the gospel reminds us that if we know the exceeding power of God, that that power is at work in us right now. And that power is a power that helps us. It helps to calm our fears. It helps us to know that we can gain an accurate perspective of where we are now is not where we're ultimately going to be because God is not finished. He's going to continue working in us. And nothing will hinder, and hinder that work of Christ in His work of sanctification. It will help us know that we can persevere and keep going in the midst of a difficult life in a fallen world. And indeed, it is the hope of the gospel that will help us fight fight the enticement of materialism that constantly gives us these messages saying you 'll find your satisfaction in the attainment of more and more things." It is Paul who said, "I have assurance." Paul said, "I am what I am. why? by the grace of God." Paul, who one time had no interest in the things of the future, he was too much wrapped up in the things that were giving him his sense of significance. Those things that he prided himself on, he says in Philippians chapter three, that all changed radically for him. He says, "I'm willing to die. I'm willing to be, be uh, facing all kinds of things where, uh, where the, the things I used to live for no longer need anything to me. Why? Because I says I I know the power of the resurrection at work in me. I know Christ. Indeed, the power of the gospel is to give us hope, to help us have confidence." that the schemes of the enemy, the Satan, will not prevail, that there is no antagonist, there is no one who is a person who is opposing us that will prevail against Christ ultimately. That is the hope of the gospel, my friend. Indeed, as you look through this text, there is all sorts of indicators from Christ. As he himself stands there among them, says, I've come that you might have hope. He is our hope. He is the source of hope. And I pray that God will help us open our eyes to understand more and more of how it is that we can have hope in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, it is with Paul, the Apostle Paul, that I echo his prayer this morning in light of this text of Scripture And it is my prayer, Lord, that you would open the eyes of all of our hearts here this morning. That you might enlighten us so that we may know what is the hope of your calling. That we might know what are the riches of the glory of your inheritance in the saints. That we might know what is the surpassing greatness of your power toward those of us who do believe that we might know this power in accordance with the working of that strength of your might, which you brought about when Christ, when you raised Him from the dead, and you now seated Him at the right hand in heavenly places, above all rule and authority and power and dominion, in every name that's named in this age, but in the age to come. There's no one greater than Christ. Lord, help us to have hope in Christ. Help us to be encouraged. Help us to know that there is... There is grace for us as we struggle with our weaknesses in this world. And we pray, Father, that your power might be at work in each heart, humbling us to see that your word is true, that your promises do not fail, and Christ is indeed our hope. We pray in his name. Amen.